One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze. Relax and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hello, and welcome to the other half. Episode 2.18, Sophia... Stabbed in the bag. I'm speaking to you today from a brand new room from my new recording studio slash spare room slash study in my brand new house. It's been a long road getting here and it's had a bit of a knock-on effect on the rate of getting episodes out, so sorry about that. But normal service should be resumed now in my snazzy new digs. Right. So, where were we? Last time, we looked at Sophia's time as Crown Princess of Greece, at a time when the kingdom was champing at the bit to enact the so-called Great Idea to unite all territories that had been historically Greek under Greek rule. There were four times more ethnic Greeks outside the Kingdom of Greece than there were inside, and proponents of the Great Idea wanted them all to be united under one nation. We saw the Greeks come into conflict with the Ottomans and antagonise the British and French in the process, leading to national humiliation and financial ruin. Sophia, throughout all of this, did her best to support her husband, all the while suffering from unpopularity in Greece and utter contempt from her brother, the Kaiser. We ended with the assassination of the king, Sophia's father-in-law, just as his armies were defeating his Turkish enemies in the First Balkan War, leading to the accession of her husband and Sophia becoming the Queen of Greece. Today, we will see how she and her husband fared on the throne. I hope that you've been enjoying this series on Sophia. I certainly have. It's nice to get out of the Anglo-German comfort zone we've been in so far in this series and take a nice trip to Greece. Ooh, that's a nice thought. What with all the disgusting weather we've been having recently, I could do with a Greek holiday. Anyway, before I start wistfully examining travel websites, 
I should thank my Patreon supporters, especially our new ones for this week, Catherine, Mallory and Sulianne. If you too would like to support the show, then please head on over to patreon.com forward slash the other half podcast. To all my new listeners, welcome. To the rest of you, welcome back. time that King George I breathed his last, he had ruled for a couple of weeks short of 50 years, which, in such a turbulent part of the world, was no mean feat. He had founded a new dynasty, and despite all the odds, had handed over to his son a kingdom that was, if not stable, then certainly had decent foundations. Moreover, His son, Constantine, was in a fantastic position to take on the job as king. A report written at the time by the British Embassy stated that Constantine, quote, ascended the throne at a moment when his victories had already made him a popular idol. The rest of the royal family have entirely recovered the respect and affection of the people. It was a bittersweet moment for Constantine and Sophia, especially as, at the time of becoming queen, Sophia was seven months pregnant. When, in June 1913, at the age of 42, she gave birth to Catherine, she gave her final child an illustrious set of godparents to symbolise the excitement and potential of the new regime. There was her mother-in-law, Queen Olga, her brother, Kaiser Wilhelm, her cousin, King George V of Great Britain, and Queen Alexandra. And, in a first for me, she also invited the Greek army and navy to act as godparents as well, a symbol of their importance to the royal family. The armed forces under Constantine's command had certainly made amends for their poor performance during the previous wars, and by the time the dust had settled in the Balkans, Greece had nearly doubled in size, with new mainland boundaries now roughly conforming to where they are today. There had been a prophecy that said that when Constantine and Sophia ruled, Greece would achieve glory. Things certainly looked that they were going that way. Sophia was anxious to capitalise on all this goodwill, and being a practical person, she set about taking on projects that she thought would make a real difference in the lives of ordinary Greeks. She maintained her work with hospitals, education and care for the poor, But she also promoted another cause that I haven't yet mentioned, that of nature. She had a particular interest in protecting forests around Athens that were frequently under threat from fires and for replanting trees in regions that had been deforested. She also founded animal welfare organisations such as the Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals. With all of this good and diligent work and the popularity of her husband, you would have thought that she would be beloved by her people. But no, there was a problem, and that problem was the place of her birth. She was always seen as being a German princess, and despite her fallings out with her brother, despite her hard work in learning the language and serving Greek causes, despite even her quite obvious preference for the British side of her family and the values they espoused, 
she would always be seen as the sister of the Kaiser. They loathed each other, family or not, but Sophia would forever be tainted by this association, and it was deeply damaging to her, especially as the man that dominated Greek politics at the time was fervently anti-German. Eleftherios Venizelos is a man who has been on the scene for quite some time in our story, but I haven't actually talked about him yet directly, as, you know, too many names spoil the broth. He was from Crete, and was heavily steeped in the ideology of the Great Idea, as that, of course, would, as he saw it, set his homeland free from Ottoman oppression. He had come to prominence during the Military League takeover of the government in 1909, helping to resolve the crisis and becoming Prime Minister the following year. He had been right at the heart of the formation of the anti-Ottoman Balkan League and supported the outbreak of war with the Turks. The conflict in the Balkans saw the first breach between Constantine and the Prime Minister, one that went to the very heart of the Greek constitution. As Venizelos saw it, he was the head of the government, and the government controlled the army. Therefore, Constantine, as head of the army, reported to him. As Constantine saw it, the king was ultimately in charge, and so he reported to the king. Throughout the war, there was tremendous tension and outright insubordination between the two, setting the tone for a highly acrimonious relationship when Constantine became king. Sophia's relationship with Venizelos was no better, especially given the fact that the Prime Minister saw her as being German and therefore a pro-Ottoman infiltrator. Well aware of their mutual animosity, her ever-so-delightful brother decided to play a little trick on her by inviting them both to dinner at his holiday home in Corfu and then seating them next to each other. Knowing that they strongly disliked each other, this was another way for the Kaiser to get revenge on his sister, and it made Sophia furious. She was apparently perfectly cordial and courteous during the dinner, but afterwards stormed out in anger, not saying goodbye to her brother. So, we have a split then, between a royal family that was perceived to be pro-German and a government that was keen to make further gains against the Ottomans. The situation was fraught and tense, and the last thing they needed was a giant crisis to split this wedge asunder. Which was why it was super inconvenient that it was now that a certain Austrian prince was shot by a Serbian. Hearing the news while at a sporting event in the Olympic Stadium in Athens... King Constantine reportedly turned to his daughter and uttered one of history's great understatements. Quote, Now we can expect trouble. Sure enough, a few weeks later, World War I broke out. World War I was a war between all of Europe's great powers, but it affected everyone, especially those in border zones, or those in areas where there was a territorial dispute. One such area was the Balkans. The whole thing started there, after all. There was going to be a lot of fighting in that region, and both sides wanted allies. This meant that there was a tremendous amount of pressure on King Constantine to choose a side, 
The Entente powers of Britain, France and Russia wanted an ally that could threaten the southern flank of Germany and Austria-Hungary. The Central Powers were keen to prevent that from happening. With that in mind, you might have expected the Kaiser to court Constantine. He was married to his sister, after all. What use is of a dynastic marriage if not to secure an alliance in wartime? But no, Kaiser Wilhelm being Kaiser Wilhelm, he decided to threaten him instead. Quote, If, contrary to my expectations, you range yourself with our opponents, Greece will be exposed to simultaneous attack by Italy, Bulgaria and Turkey, and our personal relations will suffer for all time. Constantine, however, had no wish to be drawn into the conflict. The issue, simply put, was that if he brought Greece into the war on the side of the Germans, he would end up at war with the rest of the Balkans, especially Bulgaria, which had Russia as their protector. Greece could lose all that they had gained in the Balkan Wars. He replied to the Kaiser, quote, It seems to me that the interests of Greece demand that she should observe absolute neutrality and the maintenance of the status quo in the Balkans. This was the polite reply. In a letter to the Russian Tsar, Constantine raged about his brother-in-law. Quote, Does he take me for a German? He seems to forget his geography, and that Greece, 24 hours after she had declared herself Germany's ally, would be reduced to cinders by the Allied fleets. What folly! Whoever heard of such a thing? No, we are Greeks, and the interest of Greece must come first. For the present, at any rate, it is imperative that we should remain neutral. But as to joining Germany, such an eventuality is, and always will be, an impossibility. The inference here then is clear. Greece would never support the Central Powers. But as for the Entente? Never say never. But there is an element of playing to the crowd here. Constantine's inclination was towards Germany and he respected and feared their military might. He wasn't going to tell that to the Tsar, especially given that the Russians had been a great supporter of his regime. Constantine wanted to keep him on side, with the hope that maybe he could make him an offer he couldn't refuse. In this, Greece followed the same path as a number of smaller powers, including Italy and Bulgaria, each waiting to see who would offer them the most advantage, and which side was most likely to win. Constantine was trying to plot a middle course here. He didn't want to get bogged down in a Balkan mire. If he sided with Germany, Greece would be destroyed by the Royal Navy. If he sided with the Entente, he would be destroyed by the Imperial German Army. But, in the words of Mrs Thatcher, the problem with standing in the middle of the road is that you get hit from both sides. The problem is that people assumed that he was pro-German, After all, his wife was German, his family was part German, he had been trained as an officer in Germany, as had most of the Greek senior officer corps. And the fact is that he probably was disposed more towards the German side of the conflict, but that didn't mean that he was inclined to join the war on their side. Moreover, his wife was the most British German woman that you could possibly find, and the chances of his siding with a power allied to the Turks was extremely unlikely. But nonetheless, people saw Constantine as being for the Central Powers and being pushed towards it by his German wife. This view was reinforced by Entente propaganda, 
which used this as a means of putting pressure on Constantine to side with them, and by the Prime Minister Venizelos. He was full-throated in his position that Greece should side with the Entente. This was a perfect opportunity for Greece to fulfil the promise of the great idea. It had British, French and Russian support now for a campaign against the Turks, and potentially the Bulgarians should they side with the Central Powers. This was their best chance to achieve all of their nationalistic, expansionistic dreams, and should not go to waste. And Venizelos was not going to let it. The pressure increased in 1915, where the UK and France hatched a plan to open up a new front against the Turks through the Dardanelles, and they wanted Greek support in this endeavour. Venizelos was firmly behind this proposal. This was exactly what he wanted. Here was Greece's opportunity, finally, to take back the lands that were rightfully hers. He urged the king to throw in his lot with the Entente on this expedition, but once again, Constantine refused. Furious, Venizelos resigned, forcing a general election, which he won in a landslide, further proof in his mind that the Greek people were on his side. It didn't matter that the British were bogged down in a hopeless struggle in Gallipoli. Greece had to get in on the action. The pressure on Constantine was intense, but the real locus of ire was Queen Sophia. The pro-Venizelos crowd refused to believe that the king was just being cautious. No, he had to be secretly working with the Germans, and what better conduit for that than his wife, who was, get this, the sister of the Kaiser. Not only that, but her Chamberlain's brother just happened to be the Greek ambassador to Germany. So she had a secret back channel to Berlin all of her own? J'accuse! Things started to get really nasty when, in the summer of 1915, Constantine fell seriously ill. It seems to have been exhaustion that brought this on, but Venizelos and his friends put it about that something far more sinister was afoot. The most lurid of these accusations was that Sophia had stabbed her husband in the back, quite literally, all for failing to bring Greece into the war on the German side. This was total rubbish, of course. Indeed, Sophia nursed her husband herself and was desperately worried for him. Indeed, when things got really bad, a miraculous icon of Madonna and Child was brought in and King and Queen prayed before it while thousands of Greeks knelt outside the palace in reverence, praying for the king to be spared. Constantine survived, thanks in part to his wife's efforts, but yet again her contribution was overlooked and the criticism and suspicion only intensified. Athens in this period was a hotbed of intrigue, as agents from Germany and France in particular agitated the populace in an attempt to drum up support and destroy their opponents. One particularly colourful rumour, spread by the French, concerned a pleasure beach near Athens, where, it was alleged, the Queen had arranged for the construction of a vast subterranean submarine refuelling base. Indeed, it was said that Sophia would come down at tea time every day to watch it happen. Such rumours don't really pass the sniff test, but they were believed. No one cared that Sophia hated her brother and loved Britain. She had always been more the granddaughter of Victoria than the sister of the Kaiser, 
But no one cared. As I said, she was defined by the country of her birth. The British were rapidly coming to the view that the French were going far too far in this endeavour. They wanted the Greeks on side, but they feared that their allies were agitating for regime change and for the establishment of a republic on the French model, and that simply wouldn't do. In particular, the Greeks had the support of Lord Kitchener, the British Minister of War, he of the famous moustache that stared from recruitment posters, telling young Brits that their country needed them. This would have been a great comfort to the Anglophilic Sophia in particular, who wanted nothing more than for the country she loved to support her husband's policy. Kitchener's support led to a slight easing of pressure, but it wouldn't last for long. In June 1916, while on a diplomatic mission to Russia aboard HMS Hampshire, Kitchener was killed when the ship was hit by a German torpedo. He was replaced in his post by David Lloyd George, a man who was far more disposed to Venezuelan politics than his predecessor had been. Then things really got out of hand. A month after Kitchener was killed, a fire broke out in the woods outside the royal palace. Fanned by the winds and fueled by the dryness of the wood in the trees, the flames hurtled towards the royal family's home. They rushed to escape, but in the hurry, Constantine slipped and fell, spraining his ankle. Sophia and the children were forced to leave him to the care of two soldiers. But then she and her daughter Catherine became separated from the main party and became trapped in a thick fog of smoke. Not knowing exactly where she was, she fled with her child in her arms as fast as she could, outrunning the flames, before collapsing in exhaustion two miles away. When the fire was put out and the smoke cleared, 18 men lay dead, and the police discovered petrol cans left at strategic positions around the forest. Sophia's great passion was the forests around Athens, and now her enemies had tried to use them to kill her and her family. If that was a warning shot, then worse was to come. Following the failure of the Gallipoli campaign, the Anglo-French force concentrated in the city of Salonika, now known as Thessaloniki. It had been ceded to Greece after the Balkan Wars in 1913, and Venizelos had encouraged Allied troops to set up camp there after Bulgaria had entered the war on the German side. The presence of Allied troops on Greek land was not something that Constantine liked, but there was nothing he could do about it. Nevertheless, he still refused to enter the war. Infuriated, Venizelos, who had boycotted a snap election in December, decided to take decisive action. He and his allies travelled to Salonika, and there declared themselves to be the true government of Greece, calling themselves the Provisional Government of National Defence. This government immediately declared for the Entente, forcing the Greek dumb forces to choose sides between Venizelos and the king. In gratitude, the Entente powers recognised the Salonika government as the true government of Greece, thus entrenching what is now known as the National Schism. The French were the most enthusiastic supporters of Venizelos, and fanned yet more anti-royalist propaganda. They were determined that Greece should enter the war on their side, and if the king wouldn't do it, then he had to go. In December 1916, they made their move. 
an Anglo-French task force was dispatched to Athens to capture the royal family and force them to acquiesce to their demands in what is known in Greece as the Noemvriana. But they had underestimated support for the king and the capital, and the force was driven back by the royalists. That tactic having failed, the Entente engaged in a bit of gunboat diplomacy and began shelling Athens by sea. The guns on the British and French warships were no joke, and soon 5-12 to 12 inch shells were pounding the ancient city, including the royal palace at which Constantine, Sophia and two of their children were staying. Sophia, after seeing her daughters safely ensconced in the cellars, ran about the palace and gardens as high explosive shells exploded all around them, gathering up the servants and insisting that they too join them in the cellars. It was a harrowing ordeal. She described it in a telegram to the Kaiser. Quote, By a miracle we are safe. The shells exploded very near us. We took refuge in the cellars. Serious engagements also took place next day in the streets. The army and the people fought in a magnificent manner and behaved loyally. What will the demands of the Entente be? The health of all is good, Great nervous tension. We are prepared for everything. Following this, the French blockaded Greece, looking to starve the royalists out. Constantine sent a furious letter to King George V, pleading with him to talk some sense into his government and their allies. Sophia, meanwhile, was forced to beg for help from her brother, which must have been utterly humiliating. In particular, she inquired from him when a German army in Macedonia might be ready to advance, hoping against hope that a German attack might cause the French to lift the blockade. Some have since used this as evidence that Sophia had been with the Germans all along, that she was now egging her brother on to attack the Entente, that now finally she was showing her true colours. But this was not the result of some carefully thought-out scheme. This was about survival. As her brother-in-law Nicholas noted, quote, If your house is broken into and plundered and finally set on fire by persons whom you consider to be your best friends, have the latter any right to call you traitor because, in despair, you open out your window and screamed for help? The blockade was causing widespread hardship, with malnutrition rife and death from starvation a common occurrence all over Greece. The French enforced the blockade mercilessly, even sinking fishing boats that desperately took to sea in search of food. When they protested, the French had this pitiless reply. If you want to be left alone, you have only to drive out your king. Sophia, through the Patriotic League of Greek Women, did her best to alleviate the suffering of her people, distributing what food was available to the poorest, along with medical supplies and blankets but it wasn't nearly enough. A contemporary historian, S.P.P. Cosmitatos, described the blockade as, quote, a more subtle and elegant form of massacre. Instead of the victim's throat being cut, he is made to die of starvation. Constantine and Sophia had wanted to avoid the horror of total war, but the French had brought war to Greece. For Sophia, what made this all even worse was that the British, the foreign nation that she loved above all others, supported this siege. They were not the most enthusiastic of participants, 
but they were involved nonetheless and backed up the French. Sophia's daughter Helen summed up her mother's feelings when she said, quote, It was as though some dear, trusted friend had cold-bloodedly pushed a dagger into one's back. What is amazing is how steadfast the Greeks were in enduring this punishment. Venizelos and his French friends had thought that this push would be enough to foment revolution, but instead it caused an opposite effect. The Greek people were willing to starve for their king. Down with the allies, they cried. The Metropolitan of Athens held an anathema service, where thousands of Athenians threw stones in a mock burial pit for Venizelos. There were even inscriptions on tombs of dead babies that read, Here lies my child, starved to death by Venizelos. But just as things were beginning to look up for Constantine and Sophia, terrible news came from Russia. The Tsar had been overthrown by revolutionaries and replaced by a republican government. This was bad for three reasons. Firstly, the Tsar had been a big supporter of the Greek royal family and had protected them for many years. Now he was gone, and so was his diplomatic cover. Second, the Entente feared that this might mean that Russia would drop out of the war, meaning that, more than ever, they needed allies in their titanic struggle against the Central Powers. And finally, the success of Republican revolutionaries against the most august and powerful of the old autocracies emboldened Venizelos and his allies in their desire to overthrow the monarchy. The French redoubled their diplomatic efforts to force Constantine from office. In June 1917, they dispatched a senator named Charles Jonard to Athens with a simple ultimatum. Abdicate, or we will destroy your country. They even demanded a change of succession, as his eldest son George was considered too pro-German. Instead, they insisted that his younger son Alexander succeed his father. With his people dying all around him, and not wanting to plunge his country further into civil war, Constantine agreed. When news broke, the people of Athens stormed into the streets, furious at the perfidy of the French. The bells rang, and nobility rallied to the palace, promising the king that they would never let the French take him. But Constantine had made up his mind. He had to abdicate and leave Greece, along with his wife. Thus began a kind of threatening farce, as the people of Athens refused to let their king go, even though he wanted to. The royal family were besieged by sort of nefarious well-wishers, indignant that their king was giving up. Constantine tried to slip away at 4.30 in the morning, but guardsmen literally threw themselves in front of the car, forming a human barricade. When they tried again a few hours later, they were pushed back by crowds, yelling, We shall not let you pass, and better to kill the king than let him leave Greece. The king had engaged in a policy of neutrality to avoid the horror of war, and yet that horror had been forced upon him. Now he was trying to abdicate to avoid civil war, but now it looked like that would be forced upon him as well. Begging for calm, he issued the following proclamation, stating that, quote, Even far from Greece, the Queen and I will always retain the same affection toward the Greek people. I beg you all to accept my decision with serenity, trusting to God, whose blessing I invoke on the whole nation. 
At this moment, the greatest solace for the Queen and myself lies in the affection and devotion which you have always shown to us, in the happy days as in the unhappy ones. May God protect Greece. Yet, this did nothing to calm the protesters, who maintained their blockade on the palace in the hope that, if they could only prevent him from leaving, that he could be persuaded to unabdicate. So next, the royals tried to flee by a side exit. Yet this ruse too was discovered, and they had to literally fight their way out of the door and into the waiting cars. Prince Christopher describes it thus, quote, Queen Sophia, who had been ill, lagged behind, and two of us seized her under the arms and almost carried her along, spurred on by the yells of the crowd on discovering it had been tricked. We could hear the wooden railing cracking in the general stampede back to the front of the palace, but by that time the king, Queen Sophia and their children had hurled themselves unceremonially into the cars. The crown prince drove off, lying on the floor of one, with his legs waving wildly out of the open door. If the crowd was frenzied before, now that they saw their king and queen driving away, they went totally insane. Once again, they threw themselves in front of the cars, forcing soldiers to pull them out of the way. Some pulled out guns and threatened to shoot themselves. It was bedlam. Things were little better when they reached the port town of Oropus. There the royal yacht was moored off the pier. But between them and the pier was a crowd of people desperate to stop them from leaving. Prince Nicholas describes their attempt to reach the boat. Quote, The crush became even greater when we advanced along the pier. The nearer the king and queen drew to the boat, the fiercer grew the frenzy of the people who tried to keep him back by force. Many leapt into the sea and held fast to the boat. The king and queen, after one last handshake right and left, stepped into the boat. Lamentations and sobs rent the air, whilst all the people went down on their knees and stretched out their hands towards the king and queen. It was a heart-rending picture, and the king ordered them to put on speed. As they steamed off into exile, Sophia would have reflected on their lucky escape, but also the terrible price they had had to pay, as they had lost their thrones and been forced to leave behind their son Alexander. They had taken on Venizelos, the Satan of Salonika as he was known in royalist circles, and they had lost. They had stood in the way of the Entente in their death struggle with the Central Powers, and blocked the path of the great idea. No matter that their goal had simply been to keep their country out of the First World War, the war to end all wars, no matter that they were still incredibly popular in many parts of Greece, no matter that their rule was legitimate, they were out. Their son Alexander would be king, but only a puppet. Venizelos would rule as a dictator, and bring Greece finally into the war. And all Sophia could do was sit in her Swiss exile and watch. But that is not the end of her story. Oh no. Tragedy and disaster would bring Sophia and her husband back to Greece for one last hurrah. And that is what we will look at next time for the final part of the story of Sophia, Queen of the Hellens.
Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. 